away hearing expressions, cliches, and then finding out the meaning. You know, we learn these cliches from little on up, even if we don't know what it means. Like we've all heard the expression, throwing in the towel. Now, maybe as a youngster, we think, okay, put our towel in the hamper so mom can wash it. But that's not exactly how it's used. And we use throwing in the towel a lot. I mean, it's really one of the most uh, quoted metaphors and cliches. But where does it come from? Well, you may know this, but you may not. This expression derives from boxing. When a boxer is suffering a beating and his corner wants to stop the fight, they literally take a towel and throw it into the ring. And hopefully the, the referee will see it. And this is showing that they are ending the fight in spite of what the fighter says. The earliest citation that is found was found in an American newspaper in 1913. It said Murphy went after landing right and left to an undefended face. The crowd beckoned the referee to stop the fight and finally a towel was thrown from Burns' corner as a token of defeat. Well, the phrase not only kept going on in boxing, but it became a figurative uh, phrase that is used quite often. What does it mean other than literally uh, that the context is, uh, contest is over? By the way, I will say that whole thing is controversial, throwing in the towel. I have seen when uh, the corner, the, the uh, coaches, the trainers should have thrown in the towel and they didn't. And the guy is just getting a beaten mercilessly. We've also seen when trainers have thrown in the towel, and usually, usually the fighter is upset. And we see that a lot, and he'll go to his corner and he'll argue with them. Um, you know, and it, <laughs> it's almost like the fighter was saying, I don't understand. I kept hitting him in the fist with my jaw, but he wouldn't go down. Well, we have even controversies even recently and I'm not going to go into that but whether uh, a fighter should uh, uh, not be upset there are those fighters that do say no mas no more uh, there are, I did see a clip in preparing for this sermon I did see a clip where <laughs> it was like one of the short rounds like fourth rounds and the and the fighters going I don't want to go in I don't want to go in. And the trainer's going, no, you got to go in. you got to go in. I don't want to go in. And, and, and it's, it's becoming a spectacle. Finally, the referees come over, and they take the, the fighter away from the corner. Do you want to fight? I don't want to fight. I don't want to go in. And they call the fight off. No towel was used there. Well, I think of this expression because I think of what it means. It's essentially the act of giving up, giving in. Uh, often there is a major struggle or a major fight that has caused one to do it. I'd hate to see the idea of someone throwing in the towel when they weren't doing anything. But it is a surrender. It's an admission that one cannot continue or overcome a particular challenge. In the face of overwhelming adversity or after a prolonged period of effort, one might be tempted to throw in the towel, indicating that they've reached their limit and are unable to proceed further. Well, it very, very much is appropriate in our sermon series, which is entitled Fighting the Good Fight. And we've talked about fighting the good fight in behavior. We've talked about fighting the good fight in ministry. Last week, we talked about fighting the good fight in spiritual warfare, particularly in false teaching. And this week, we're going to talk about fighting the good fight with perseverance to the end. And in some cases, to the bitter end. But it is a sweet entrance into heaven. We find the Apostle Paul talking about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. So three times in the epistles of Timothy, 
Paul says the phrase, fight the good fight. Actually, two. The third one is, I have fought the good fight. When we were talking about it last week, it was about spiritual warfare. And we didn't quite finish all of the applications. So before we begin and look, looking at this fourth part, we will go back to the third point and deal with it just a little bit. But let's turn in our Bibles again to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. Here the Apostle Paul is clearly at the end of his life, the end of his ministry. And this is how he speaks of it in metaphors. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word and the reality of your word. It would be wrong to say, Lord, that as Christians, everything goes fine, because that's not the case. That's not the case with the world. That's not the case with Satan. That's not the case with even our own sinful nature. There are battles on every one of those levels. But Father, we thank you that we have the victory in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We are empowered to fight the good fight and keep on and not throw in the towel. Father, we would ask you to teach us from the scriptures the powerful word of God to ignite, Father, in our soul this commitment, Lord, to always be serving you, to always be involved. Help me to explain not only the scriptures, Lord, but even its proper application, and we'll give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Just let me go back to point number three, fighting the good fight in spiritual warfare. I, this was a, uh, I really thought this was a necessary point that needed to be made. We had already taught spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6 with the armor of God. What we were doing here in Timothy for our theme this year was looking for some of the references that have to do with the devil and also demons. And that's what we were talking about in that context of spiritual warfare. And I'd like to have you quickly turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And as you know, this was our major point last week. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, but the Spirit explicitly says, with no uncertain terms, that in later times or latter times, which we are in now, it began with the first advent of Christ, that some will fall away from the faith. That is, that they will become apostates. And here's how. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. I said last week, this is one of the most shocking verses in the New Testament. This is, this is uh, one of the most serious ones. To, to think about that false teaching and false religion comes not by, oops, I made a mistake, a typo, but by following doctrines that were getting their source from demons. Now, let me say what I tried to clarify last week. We're not saying that if someone maybe has a different interpretation in-house theology on when the rapture will take place, some pre-trib, some mid-trib, some post-trib. We believe here pre-trib and make no apologies for it. But 
that doesn't mean that they are false teachers who have a different view on those things, those secondary things, and that means that they learn the doctrines from demons. We are talking specifically about major false teachers, particularly in the gospel. When they are preaching another gospel, which is no gospel, and no one can get saved from it. There is only one gospel. The simple gospel is that we're all sinners. Christ died on the cross for our sins, all sins. And all we can do is place our faith in him and accept him as our sacrifice, as our Savior, the one who died on the cross, took my sins on the cross, paid my penalty, and the moment I put my faith in him, we are forgiven of eternal life. I would want to know why any of us would want that. But there are teachers, false teachers, that promote that and many other things that are absolutely wrong. Where does that come from? It says right here, it comes from doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. And so you better believe we are fighting a fight. It is a good fight because of the end. It is a good fight because of the, the victory we can have. But it is indeed a fight, a fight for true doctrine. And this is why we're always concerned about that here, this church. The other point that we made last week was that not only do we have the battle of false teaching, but Satan himself has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. I don't know about you, but I actually remember a time when I was blinded. I remember a time when I did get it. I didn't care to get it. In fact, I purposely did not get it or want it. But the Lord saved me once I was blind, but now I see. We are told in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we've been looking at this verse quite a few times within the last month. It says, the Lord's bondservant, if you're a servant of the Lord, if you serve the Lord, you must not be quarrelsome. That's not the way to win. But be kind to all. It's a fruit of the Spirit, kindness. Able to teach Patient, patient when wronged, it's a fruit of the Spirit. With gentleness, another fruit of the Spirit. Correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And here we go, verse 26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers. We are to do our responsibility and our joy of sharing the gospel and pray that God will open the eyes of those who hear the gospel, just like he did for us. Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I ran away from them, and now I are one of them. And when you talk to someone about the Lord and there's no openness in their heart, you understand the reality of this verse. You understand what's going on. The third point, which we were not able to cover, and I just want to cover it quickly in a quick application. We are coming back to 1 Timothy chapter 3 to cover it in detail. So I will ask you to quickly turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, because we have another mention of the devil here. This is all part of part three, fighting the good fight in spiritual warfare. We're going to move on quickly to fighting the good fight with perseverance to the end. But here, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, it's talking about the qualifications of elders. And I made it clear this morning that that is exactly what it says and what exactly what it is. So we as elders, we need to fit these. But I've always said, it's not just the elders, it's everyone and every believer. In other words, in other words, if one of the qualifications is we're supposed to be faithful men, you, you don't say, well, I'm not faithful, I don't need to be faithful because I'm not an elder. But if I ever happen to become an elder, well, I'll start being faithful. That's the wrong way to go about it and probably would not be seen as one with some of the qualifications of an elder. But here it's beginning in verse 6 about not a new convert. 
Not someone who just comes to Christ. They have a lot to learn, don't they? We had a lot to learn, and we're still learning. But look at what he says. Not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. I'm going to hold there. We'll pick up verse 7 in just a second. The idea is, is it does take time, I believe, as a believer, uh, to realize it's not me who does it. It is the Lord who does it. I've, I know there came a point in my ministry where I, I, I describe it this way. It, it is not me. You know, there are times when you're preaching and you're thinking, wow, did I just not make a connection there or what? I mean, how are those dominoes supposed to fall when the first domino is in the middle, okay? And, and someone comes to you and says, hey, I really appreciated that sermon. I'll tell you another time, too. There are people that come up and, and they'll say, you know, I really appreciated that sermon. And they'll start talking about something that they really needed to hear and grow in, and I never said it. You know, that's, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God. You realize that when the smoke clears, we're all on our faces, are we not? Giving the glory to the only one standing, which is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you're a new convert, you may not necessarily know that. You may think it all depends on you. You may think that, you know, God saved you um, because he thought that you were going to be a great asset to his kingdom. <laughs> when it says in Corinthians that he chose us, uh, the weak, to confound the strong and the foolish to confound the wise. And now I know why I was chosen. But the idea here is, is you, there's a lot of things that you don't understand. Uh, and, and pride is one of the worst ones of them. It says he'll become conceited, thinking it was him, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. We could look at Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28, and we could see that pride was his downfall. Satan, we believe, was, if not one of, then the most uh, beautiful angelic being, uh, highest angelic being. And because of all of that, he began to took, take pride in it. And pride is sin. And, and what is the middle of the letter sin? I. And we hear even in Isaiah 14 where it's I, 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 Satan, will rise above the most high. I will do this. I will do this. I is the middle of the word sin, and I is the middle of the word pride. And I'm not saying that when we're more mature, we don't have pride. God forbid that I should say that. Because um, the moment you say you don't have pride, you just lost it. But it is the idea that <clears throat> you are hopefully becoming less conceited. And you understand that Satan is going to try to tempt you to become prideful. And pride comes before a fall. And, and it says that God does not exalt the, the proud. Why? Because that's not his message. His message isn't how great we are. That's not his message. His message is how great the Lord Jesus Christ is and how exalted on high. But when we're proud, we're blowing our own horns. Now, there's a metaphor for you. I'll have to search that one up sometime. But uh, we blow our own, own horns about it. And, and, you know, and, and God says, no, he resists the proud. It's as if God goes, oh, no, oh, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. Anyway, this is a, an admonition for a qualification for an elder, but it's also good advice for all of us not be, to become prideful. The other one, and this is going to really sum up the point, the point is, number three, marring the believer's testimony. He will, Satan will either promote false teaching, try to get even believers to, to, to follow it, or he will you will find out that there are apostates who say, no, I don't believe in Christianity, I reject it, and go on into a false religion. <clears throat> he also blinds the minds of unbelievers, but he tries to mar the testimony of believers. One, 
through tempting them to be prideful. 2, verse 7. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. The idea here is that the devil is always trying to snare the believer, trying to mar his testimony so that when he does share the gospel, the unbeliever is saying, if that's what Christianity is, why do I even need it? Why would I even want it? God forbid. I do remember years ago uh, as a church, we were going out and we were handing out tracts and knocking on doors. And when I wasn't a pastor then, um, someone answered the door and we told them we were just handing out some uh, information from our church. <coughs> Excuse me. And <clears throat> they said, well, what church do you go to? And we told them what church we went to and they said, oh, that's where so-and-so goes to church and I'm like what and uh, they said no thank you close the door on us now <clears throat> maybe I, I didn't know what the whole situation I didn't have time to ask the door was shut but you know m maybe it wasn't the individual's fault maybe the individual was sharing the gospel in a loving and kind way and they just didn't want any part of it we see that or maybe there actually was something to which maybe this believer should have made right so this is what we're talking about, marring the believer's testimony, having a good reputation with those outside. Now, we can have a good reputation with those in the church. We ought to, especially as elders, but there ought to be this good reputation outside. It ought to be the character of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be in us, and it ought to be attracting people to the Lord, not pushing people away. It ought to be attracting people to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ and his wonderful salvation. In fact, it was described this morning as the kindness. When the kindness of God through Jesus Christ appeared, that's the kindest thing that could ever be told about is the gospel. And so we just have to make sure that our lives are consistent because Satan is trying to get us into reproach, blame, and a snare, <clears throat> and a snare, typically, depending on the type of snare, is the harder you try to get out, the tighter it can get. And so we need to avoid those snares, and then if we do get into a snare, we need to do everything we possibly can to get out of it. Uh, whatever is necessary in repenting or, or apologizing. And so this is the idea where we are fighting the good fight in spiritual warfare. Now, you can imagine if we're talking about fighting the good fight in behavior, and that's, that's enough battle right there, you know, battling our, our own sinful nature and struggles, talking to someone yesterday and so candidly and so correctly about all of us is that, you know, the Lord, Lord works in our lives, and sometimes that's what people see, but, oh, you don't know the battle that goes on underneath, and absolutely, absolutely, it is a battle. We do fight this battle. And there's a phrase that I think I understand what people mean when they say it, but we must be careful. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. Well, when it comes to sanctification, God gives us everything we need for life and godliness and the power, but we, we then have a responsibility to put it into practice. Now, when it comes to salvation, it's faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not trying to help him by trying to do good works, which are nothing more than filthy rags, Isaiah says. But when it comes to sanctification, after we come to Christ and he's making us more like Christ, he's making us holy, that we have to participate and it's a battle. And we also call that ministry when we're trying to do that in the lives of others. Now, you may not have a, a fancy title or formal title, but you, if you are a believer, you are in ministry, at least to those around you, the closest, your family, maybe those at work that you know, and even in church to build up one another. But there could be all sorts of problems in ministry. Satan is going to love to cause a problem in ministry, and so it will become a battle, and in a sense, a spiritual battle with prayer and the Word of God. But but this is all involved in ministry. 
And then there's the spiritual warfare. Uh, as if we needed another one to trip us up. But that is also a heavy duty, especially when we think of the doctrines of demons that are the source of false teaching and false religion. But now that we've, we've moved through those, let's talk about this last one. Fighting the good fight to the end. Fighting it with perseverance. Let's turn again to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. That is our text this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. And I'm actually going to go back <clears throat> to verse 5, because that, that really fits in with this context. And so our first point this morning is going to be perseverance of Paul's fight. That's what we're going to look at now. And then we're going to look at the perils in Paul's fight. What are the things that he has to persevere through? And then finally, what are the purposes for Paul's fight? In other words, what's his motivation for fighting to the end? We'll get to that. All right, first of all then, perseverance of Paul's fight. We go to verse 5, we're 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, and he's giving another admonition to Timothy. That's what a lot of this letter has to do with. He's giving admonition to this young pastor who was on his own at the moment. Uh, Paul, his mentor, uh, is always a mentor. Um, he's, always, uh, he's always teaching. Uh, I got to say this. Um, it reminds me of Pastor John Ward, the very first pastor of this church, which, by the way, is going to be doing our Bible conference this year and it's going to be June 21st to the 23rd. So uh, it's going to be a delight. So anyway, um, so we would meet on Wednesday nights uh, like we do. And then uh, for the mentally weak and insane, you would meet at his house for Greek afterwards, first year Greek. But it was very interesting. There were some times when, um, when he would need a ride to his house. So after church, we'd go there. And, and by the way, there wasn't a lot of us. We all could fit in one car. Uh, now, it may have started out as a busload, but that's what Greek does. It starts out as a busload, ends up in a car load, all in one accord, okay? Uh, and um, so, so, you know, he, so we went through it, and he's teaching, and, and that is his, his ministry. He was the one who truly exposed me to expository teaching. It, it, it was like a... It was like a, a bell went off in my head. This is exactly how one is supposed to preach. This is how you're supposed to study the word of God. And so uh, it's going to be a delight having him come. But anyway, so, so we went through that on Wednesday night. Now we're in the car. And um, there's, there's, a, there's a Christian book in the back seat. And he sat in the back seat. He picks up the Christian book. And now he's talking about it. And he's teaching us more. He's teaching us more about the... Um, you know, about, about the things of the Christian life. And we get to his house, and he's still going on and on. Um, and we finally get to the Greek. So, uh, you know, it's just constantly teaching, and that's kind of what I, I wanted to mention here. So Paul was always teaching. By the way, um, I'm glad Sally's not here, because Sally took his Greek class too, only when, when John was a new pastor. And I mean, he was rigid and strict. But this was at the end of his ministry here. We would have ice cream... <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you didn't translate it right, you knew it because he'd start to snicker and laugh. Whereas the first class, it would be very serious. But he did say to us, he would say to us from time to time, we'd, so we'd translate a little Greek sentence and he'd go, would you die for that? <laughs> and I said, no, I would never die for my translation, even if it's right. But anyway, uh, here's Paul, and he says, but you, Timothy... Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And the big one, fulfill your ministry. So fulfill your ministry, and then he's going to go right into, I have fulfilled my ministry. I have fought the good fight. Sober is the idea of clear-headed, single-minded, even seriousness about spiritual things. Enduring hardship. That's what we're going to talk about. This is one of the causes why someone will not endure it because of all the persecution. You remember John Mark? And then do the work of an evangelist. Perhaps that was his spiritual 
uh, one of his spiritual gifts, and you're thinking this is also part of it. And then finally he says, fulfill your ministry. Paul was admonishing him, you know what, Timothy, you're fighting the good fight, but keep on fighting the good fight to the very end. And then in verse 6, here's the segue. For as for Paul, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, there are some metaphors that are so metaphorically clear that you don't even have a problem with them. This is not literal in the sense of he's not saying, oh, I'm due over at another church. The time of my departure has come. This is metaphorically of the time in this life for him to leave and go to be in the presence of the Lord had come. And he uses a beautiful metaphor, metaphor of a drink offering, which is spoken of in the Old Testament. It was a, an additional offering that went along with sacrifices, uh, sort of like a free will offering. Uh, it was an aroma to the Lord. It was one that accompanied sacrifices, the continual burnt offering, Sabbaths, and other feasts that they had. But I like the way Paul is using this as the end of his life. But who would be the ultimate drink offering? The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life, his all, as a sacrifice for our sin. But Paul uses this, and so he's saying, this is my final offering. Now, when he says, I'm being poured out, it has come. We don't know exactly how he, he knows. Certainly isn't hard for us. He's an apostle. Uh, he would receive revelation from God as far as God's will. Not sure if a prophet had come up and told him. But not only was he very serious, but it actually happened. And in other places, he says, I, I don't know whether to go on to be with the Lord or stay here with you, I don't know what the Lord's going to do. So there were times when he didn't know, but this is the last letter that he writes, and he knows, he now knows, and he uses that beautiful metaphor of a drink offering, an offering of himself to the very end to be faithful to the Lord and fighting the good fight. And it was true, uh, let me read what it says in Fox's Book of Martyrs. The great apostle of the Gentiles was a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, a native of Tarsus in Cilicia, and before his conversion was called Saul. After his conversion and after suffering various persecutions at Jerusalem, here's his resume, suffering persecutions at Jerusalem, Iconium, Lystra, Philippi, and Thessalonica, he was carried prisoner as a prisoner to Rome, where he continued for two years, and that is the end of the book of Acts. We believe then what happened, and we did put this together in the very beginning of First Timothy's study. He was then released. Afterwards, he visited the churches of Greece and Rome, and preached the gospel in Spain and France, but returning to Rome, he was apprehended by order of one of the worst administrations in the history of mankind, Nero. He was apprehended by order of Nero, perhaps to, to cover up the fact that he started the fire in Rome and played the fiddle, I don't know about that. I, we don't know for sure. But he was Paul was apprehended by Nero, and he was beheaded. He was beheaded. And as best we can tell by tradition, because it's not the same as Scripture, where it's infallible and inspired, as best we can tell, that's exactly what happened. So, indeed, he was talking about the fact that his time was soon near. Now, we come to verse 7 then, and verse 7 is really important. It's the one that we really wanted to get to. It's the one that talks about Paul's perseverance of the fight. And verse 7 is made up of three parts. They are all synonymous, but look at what it says. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Now, there's something very interesting about these verbs when you see them in the Greek. They're all in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is an, an, a completed action in the past that continues to the present. I have fought the good fight, and I continue to fight the good fight up until the time when I'm going to be beheaded. And really, it's the perfect that only can cover that. All three of these, the, the idea is I have fought, I have finished, and I have kept. Those are all in the perfect tense. And so, you know, he's not saying, well, you know what? I, I'm, I'm in my re retirement years now. I've got two years left. So I'm going to retire. So I did fight the good fight. No, I have fought the good fight, and I'm going to continue as long as I have, which isn't really that long. Now, the other thing about these is there is some discussion, what do these metaphors mean? In other words, as we looked before from 1 Timothy 6.12, where 1 Timothy 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. The word there for fight is agonizomai. Uh, and it means, we get our English word, agonize from it. It's a striving of some sort. It can be an athletic contest, and it is used of that. It could be a military thing with war, or it could even be a spiritual labor. And we've actually looked at each of those and saw that th those there. So when people come to this text, that's what they're wondering. Are, are these different metaphors, or are they all the same? And in a sense, it, it, they are metaphors, so they're figures of speech. So we, we know what they're getting at. Paul has been faithful to the end. Paul has persevered to the end. Paul wants Timothy to persevere to the end. Paul is calling you and I to persevere to the end. That's the point. The first one is fought the good fight. Uh, if I was going to have to pick and choose one, I would say this is military. This is a military metaphor. When we looked at 1 Timothy 1.18, where it talked about fight the good fight, and we were talking about ministry, it used a different word that was particularly military. So I have no problem with that here, uh, the idea of military. Um, he even uses it. It gets translated in 1 Corinthians 9.7, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense. So maybe this first phrase, I fought the good fight, is a military, and it becomes a battle especially with spiritual warfare. But let me tell you, especially emotionally, especially spiritually as you continue on in the ministry, it is a joy. It's a joy beyond all joys when you find out that the Lord used you. But it also is a battle. It is a battle that you will battle the question, how long do I have? Should I be doing this? Or Lord, I don't want to do this. It is indeed a battle. But he answers that. He says, I have finished the course. So here, if we were going to have an emphasis on metaphors, it would be an athletic metaphor, running track, which we have several people here have, who have run track recently rather than 50 years ago. But it's the idea of, the course, you're thinking of a course and you're thinking of running and you're thinking of completing the course or crossing the finish line. And so that's what he's talking about. You're, you're to the end. Not in the beginning, not in the middle, and not in the end. Now, let me say something here. I am not saying that we can't ever take a break. In fact, it's good to take a break sometimes. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that someone is thrown in the towel because they have taken a break. That's, that's not it at all. But, but what, what it would really mean is someone's taking a permanent break from Christianity, maybe even an apostate, or someone has taken a permanent break from Christianity, doesn't want anything to do with ministry anymore. That is what this is guarding against. And the last one is, I have kept the faith. And here I think uh, perhaps this is a religious metaphor. Um, I, I didn't... I didn't reject what I 
what I've heard and, and I've learned. It, it's so sad to read about individuals who were, in some sense, leaders, wrote books, books that were helpful, and then all of a sudden, they, they don't agree with Christianity anymore. I just read a little bit this past week of Josh Harris. He's turned his back on Christianity. He wrote Kiss Dating Goodbye, a good book, you know, talked about church and church attendance, a reformed church. And now there's no church at all, no, no doctrine at all. And come to find out, he's been reading a man by the name of Roar, who writes in mystical terms and contemplative prayer. There it is. The false teaching did it again. That's why we've got to be on it. Anyway, you know, and then we talked last week about, you know, deconstructionism. I, I, I think it's a guise. I said, I, I'm not talking about someone who struggles and says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Come here. That's, this, this is what we do. And it's the idea of, you know what? Over time, over studying the word, the Holy Spirit will teach you. But the deconstruction movement, I really think, has an agenda to literally deconstruct and never attain Christian life, Christian faith, Christian doctrine again. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. So I'm not a fan of it at all. And so he says, Paul says, I didn't do that. I didn't have to deconstruct the faith. I didn't deconstruct the faith that the Lord Jesus Christ gave me in those years. I didn't deconstruct the faith of what I read in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit inspired me to understand, teach, preach, and write. I didn't deconstruct. There's no reason to deconstruct. But those who do deconstruct in a permanent way, he has a word for them, apostates which means that they never were true believers. John said, they were not of us because they went out from us. Had they been one of us, they would have remained with us, with doctrine, with the word. So, deconstructionism isn't even biblical at all. It doesn't even mean somebody's struggling. I get that. I get that. You, you come across what's, what someone else believes, and, and, and you don't really know all the verses that, that give you the background of what you believe, and so you're struggling, you're floundering for a little bit. Of course you are. And I think that's part and parcel of the Christian life. What are you supposed to do? Study to show yourself approved. You're, you're, you're in spiritual life 101. You're in doctrine theology 101, and this is how you learn. You, you're not... We're not giving you your, your father and mother's doctrine. We're not giving you the pastor's doctrine. We're giving you the Bible's doctrine. That's what God does when you're alone with him. Study the word of God. So he says, I have kept the faith. So regardless whether we're looking at this as athletic, military, or religious, it, they all have applications to that end. And, and, and we can see that in Scripture. But notice again, and I'll reiterate like I did before, notice it is, I have fought the good fight. It's a good fight. The word there is kalos, not agathos, but kalos, which means intrinsically good. Some has, someone has translated it as the noble fight. That's good. I, I get, I, I'll accept that. The, the, the noble fight. This is a good cause. You know what, young people, you're looking for a cause today. It's all about causes. Let me tell you, here is a cause above all other causes to fight the good fight. This good cause, it's the greatest cause there is because we're following the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, this isn't Paul being conceited with pride. Follow me, Timothy. It is an admonition for Timothy to look at Paul's life and teaching and doctrine and follow it but also look at Paul's faithfulness to the very end Timothy and fulfill your ministry now let's take a look 
at the time. <laughs> let's not. <laughs> and let's look at the perils in Paul's fight. I mean, okay, he's had to persevere. Persevere through what? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And let's look at more of Paul's resume, beginning in verse 24. It reads, as he's talking about the things that he had to go through, can you even go back to verse 23? Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. In other words, you've, you're making me do this. You're making me tell you what I went through uh, to make this argument, not to follow these other people. I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors. You want to talk about labors? They want to brag about labors? Okay, let's talk about labors. And in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. And here we go. Verse 24. Five times... I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Oh my gosh, I couldn't imagine. And it depends on what the lash was. Some have said that the lash has both sharp bone and glass on the end of it and it rips the flesh, every lash. They only do 39 because the law, <laughs> the law says you can't do more than 40. And so, you know, even though the Pharisees did that to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though they did that to him, they, they didn't want to sin. They were, they were lashing the Son of God, but didn't want to sin. They stop at 39, just in case they miscount and they don't go over 40. But this happened to Paul. Five times I received it. And then it says, three times I was beaten with rods. And I know, probably you talk to some people, I've heard him say, my mom, my dad used to make me go out and cut a switch. You cut a switch. You did not cut a rod. This is a rod. Beaten with it. Once I was stoned. Now, I want to talk about this because not only was he stoned, but he was left for dead. This was something that happened in the book of Acts. And Again, not only was he stoned, but he was left for dead. And then I want to show you what happened. In Acts chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, it says, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul. You're throwing rocks at them. You're trying to hit them in the head. You're trying to hit them in the ribs. You're trying to kill them. That's stoning is exactly that. And they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And I love this. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The same city where they just dragged him out of. You want to talk about a hero. You want to talk about a mighty man. You know, I, we often talk about Chuck Norris jokes, and I, I often wonder if the younger generation even gets the Chuck Norris jokes. But Chuck Norris is just, you know, he's so tough. He's so tough that he has a bear rug in his, in his den. Now, the bear's alive, but he's scared just like the rest of us. Did you know that when Chuck Norris was born, Afterwards, he drove him and his mother home from the hospital. <laughs> this guy is better than Chuck Norris. They leave him for dead. Maybe he was dead. Maybe the Lord brought him back to life. There's a mystery. The scriptures don't say for sure. Um, but he gets up and walks back into the same city that they just drug him out of. Wow. Wow. This is what he went through. You know what? Maybe we'd have been saying, somebody, quick, give me a towel, because they're dragging me out of the city. They want to stone me. The Apostle Paul, that, that didn't happen. That wasn't part of his vocabulary. We, we go on in the text, and he says, three times I was shipwrecked. And <clears throat> you remember in Acts 27, when he's still a prisoner, and 
they're taking him, but it's the wrong time of the year. They should have left earlier because this is the time of the year where the high winds come. Destructive. Nobody sails at this time because the Uroquillo, these dangerous winds are happening, but they're taking Paul there at this time. And of course, they are shipwrecked. And in, in the, uh, before they even get to shore, they're stuck. And the, the, the wind and the waves are tearing the, the ship apart. And they had to swim. Paul actually, more than anything else, was really giving advice to the captain of what to do and how to save all the prisoners and what to do. And so they say, grab a plank, grab something, and, and swim to shore. He was involved in that. It says, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. This is before the rescuers came. Verse 26, I have been on frequent journeys. Well, what's so bad about that? Well, they walked. And, they, and, and we talk about the Roman road, the literal Roman road, and how good it was. He wasn't always going to Rome. <laughs> going through the back country. You know, really, uh, you know, it would have been good to see Bear Grylls have, a, have an episode with the Apostle Paul. And, and I actually did see a video. A guy did follow Paul's uh, movements and journeys and went through, I mean, unbelievably um, uh, horrible geography. I mean, it wasn't easy. It, you know, it, it, they had to climb and climb mountains, climb rocks. They had to do all of this. Um, and then not only that, but they were in danger all the time. Danger from rivers. You got to cross a river. It's pretty, it's pretty deep at this time of the year. Usually you get swept away. And if that doesn't do you, maybe robbers will. There was robbers that hid out in these places. Dangers from my own countrymen, the Jews, they hated him. Dangers from the Gentiles, the very people that he was called to minister to. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among the false brethren. And he did not throw in the towel. And there is something to be said about this. This is what, what I call the external perils. But let's be honest, we know it's a little bit more than just external. We know there's a spiritual warfare going through. We, we, we know that this is all part and parcel of that. He says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. But then he moves to verse 28. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. He's not complaining. He's just telling them what's there. And so on top of all of these externals, he's got these internals of worrying about churches like the church at Corinth, where we have two epistles to Corinth, but they're quite possibly have been four altogether because they were indeed the high-maintenance church of the New Testament. If they could make a mistake, they did. And Paul had to straighten them out. And all of this. And then he's worried. He's worried about individuals. Um, uh, I don't really have time to read it now. We've, we've lost the time, but I'm going to do it anyway. First uh, Thessalonians 3, 1 through 7. Paul goes to Thessalonica. He shares the gospel. Some get saved. What happens? Boom, here comes the persecutors. Out you go. Well, he goes to the next town, Berea. Same thing. He is preaching the gospel. What happens? The persecutors in Thessalonica find out he's in Berea. They go to Berea and kick him out. Now, Paul is very concerned. This is the persecution going on against Christians, and he has new Christians in Thessalonica and in Berea. And this is what he writes in his letter to them. He says, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker. Here's Timothy. Here's Timothy's ministry. You know, we do read in 2 Timothy about his timidity, but he too is a man of God, a mighty man of valor. We went through that in our introduction. We send Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. How do they know? He was only there a few weeks after their salvation. For indeed, 
when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter, there you go, the tempter might have tempted you and our labor be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brother, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. There you go. You know, just the concern. And, and so there were a lot of things. There also were spiritual perils as well. So there's external, internal, and spiritual. Just have a moment to, to, to mention them. What about the thorn in the flesh? You remember that in 2 Corinthians where the messenger of Satan was sent to torment him, to buffet him? We find out that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Satan hindered Paul from going to see the Thessalonians. And we also see in Ephesians chapter 6 that the schemes of the devil are always there. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 it says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And the word there is methodeia. We get our English word, the methods. The diabolical methods and stratagems of Satan. And he persevered all of that. He pers persevered all of that to fight the good fight, to finish the course laid out for him to keep the faith. And now he's telling Timothy to do the same using his example. And of course, we are called to do that as well. The third part of this, I'm just going to have to go over this quickly. What are the purposes for Paul's fight? Why did he feel like this? What was the motivation? I'll read them quickly. The first was and always is to exalt Christ that's all Paul cared about. Doesn't matter about life. Doesn't matter about death. What matters is exalting him. You've got to turn to this one. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. This is where he says, well, you know, whether I'm going to stay and minister to you or whether I'm going to go to be the Lord, which is far better, I don't know. But this is Paul. But then Paul says, but let me tell you where my heart is. Let me give you my soul. He says, verse 20, Philippians 1.20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is is gain. Paul was motivated to fight the good fight because he always wanted to exalt Christ. Might have even had something to do with him and his persecution of the church before he was a believer. He wants to please Christ. He told us that in Ephesians 5.10. He told us that in Colossians that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I'm sure it had something to do with wanting to hear those precious words from Matthew 25, 21. Jesus said you would hear, well done, good and faithful slave. Well done. I want to hear well done. Don't you? I think that's in our hearts. He wants to make sure that he did not run in vain. He talks about this several times. We just read it a moment ago that he didn't run in vain. And we, we see this in, in several things, especially uh, where he says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. We see even in this context of 2 Timothy the crown, the crown of righteousness. 
He says, right after he says, I have kept the faith, he says, in the future, because I have kept the faith, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's going now. He just told us it's in a short time. Us, the rest, when he says love his appearing, thinking of the coming of Christ. Now, we may go before that. The Lord may call us sooner. But in Paul's mind, he's thinking dispensationally there, the crown. And lest we think that crowns are prideful and egotistical, First of all, we don't earn crowns because of what we can do in and of ourselves. It's the Lord who enables us to do them. And some of them are, are just related to the very fact that we are believers. Well, what? I mean, we didn't do anything. I mean, he died on the cross. We just had faith, and he gave us the faith. And yet, we'll have a crown. And then, whatever we do for the Lord, this isn't a judgment of sin. This is, what have you done for me lately? That's what it is. Now that you're a believer, what are you doing? You see, we are all in full-time ministry, and we are not to ever give up on the fight. And so these crowns are going to be thrown before the feet of Jesus. Don't stand the side of Paul in that day. <laughs> as, as You know, come on, Paul, let's get this thing over with. No, seriously, uh, what, what an honor, what a, what a privilege to be throwing these crowns at the feet to whom it is due, the one who empowers us through the Holy Spirit to even earn them. It is also what they call the, the beautifying of the bride of Christ. Then, 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 then crown me with all of the crowns. And finally, and I will close with this, finally, obviously from this text, he's thinking about a spiritual legacy to hand down to Timothy. These are the purposes for why he fought the good fight. These are the motivations. Paul desired to pass on his spiritual legacy, legacy to those who he ministered to and to those who were in ministry. And that's why he's telling Timothy to fulfill it. In 2 Corinthians, this is what Paul says. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? A little bit of irony there. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on the tablets of human hearts. Your growth, he's saying to the Corinthians, is our commendation that we haven't run in vain. And he says a similar thing to the Thessalonians. Chapter 2 of that same epistle. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. Wouldn't it be tremendous Get to heaven and see that there are people that you influence to come to Christ and they're there because the Lord used you and you allowed yourself to be used. Let's also think about, too, that the legacy we pass on specifically to our family, specifically to our children, our grandchildren. Let's also think of that, that, that if we have any commitment at all to living for the Lord, let that be passed on and surpassed by the next generation, because it usually goes the other way. So what I'm saying to us today is not to throw in the towel, but to throw in your hat, which is another expression that when a challenger wanted to meet another challenger, the challenger would take off his hat and throw it into the ring. Let us fight the good fight, not only in 2024, but our entire lives, especially in Christ-like behavior, in ministry, in spiritual warfare, and most definitely fight the good fight to the very end. 
Pursue perseverance in order to exalt Christ, please Christ, hear the words of Christ, well done, to receive the crown for Christ and to not run in vain and to pass on a spiritual legacy. Don't throw in your towel, but throw in your hat and leave it there until the Lord calls us home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your stirring words. And now we need the stirring power of the Holy Spirit to make it good. We can hear sermons. We could preach sermons and not necessarily put them into practice. I'm sorry, Lord. And that is another thing that we have to fight then, isn't it? To fight the good fight, to put these things into practice. And I pray that 2024 is a year of that. I pray that it's the foundation of many years, if you tarry, of serving you, of fighting the good fight. Whatever we have to do, Lord, to exalt you and to pass on a spiritual legacy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.